Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Uh, I want to jump right in, and I want to speak to you today about three areas of consecration for Christians. Three areas of consecration for Christians. If, if, uh, if you missed last week, I, I'd, I'd ask you to jump back to that podcast, grab it on YouTube. I, I spoke for a while about what it looks like to live a consecrated life. And we as Christians are called to live out a distinct, unique different changed life. If you meet Jesus and he does not interfere with your past way of thinking, living, and actions, then you have met you have met a mantra or a movement, but you have not met the man. Because once you meet the man, he draws a distinct line from BC to AD, who you used to be and who you are now. Paul said, it is no longer I who live. My old past self has died, but I've been resurrected resurrected with Jesus Christ. And so in that process of sanctification, we begin to change. Part of that is the decisions we make, the actions that we set for ourselves, and that is the process of consecration. So today, I want to dial in just a little bit more on the the decisions that you are to make um, and some key decisions, I think, that if you put into place in your life, it's going to radically change the foundations and the outflow of your life for many years to come. We're speaking from the story of Daniel. Daniel was a Hebrew young man who was captured from his city in Jerusalem, and he was taken into Babylon. At this point, Babylon was the greatest empire that the earth has ever seen, and the king, Nebuchadnezzar, of Babylon was a mighty king, and he had chosen Daniel and a couple of his friends to be servants in his court. The Bible goes on to tell us that in order to train them to be servants in the land, that uh, he, he did three distinct things. The first is that he, uh, he began to give them uh, uh, his own food, then he gave them new names, and then the final thing that he did was he gave him his lang- their language uh, and the Babylonians' literature. And this was the process of moving them from their old culture, the culture that worshipped Jesus, the, the culture that worshipped God, the culture that had a revelation of who God was to move them from that to their, their new Babylonian culture. The Bible many times uses Babylon as a picture of the world systems, man's way. And there's always another king that has another way that wants to move young leaders, move them away from who they really were, were born to be, and move them into the way of the world. But Daniel made a decision, a distinction. It was an act of consecration. He drew the line saying, I will not eat of the food of the king of Babylon. It was a line a dedication, a consecration that he had to draw. Have you ever had to draw a line? Maybe in relationships, maybe some boundaries in your life. Even for yourself, there comes a moment, a time in life, where you say, I'm not doing that again. I'm not going there again. I'm not hanging with them again. Daniel had very little control over his life. He he couldn't fight Babylon alone. They were defeated. But where he could make decisions, he did make decisions. And they had massive ramification, massive ramifications in his life to come. I believe that you and I, we are called to make some key and critical decisions that will have ramifications in our life. Let's pray for a moment. Let's invite the Holy Spirit in. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Come, Lord, and arrange our mind. Arrange our heart. Help us, Lord, make these key and critical decisions as we give our life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
My goal today is to help you make some, some of these foundational decisions that they would lead you to become a free people. I, I think the reality is this, a life of godly consecration creates stability where the enemy seeks to sow confusion. I'll say that again. A life of godly consecration creates stability where the enemy seeks to sow confusion, division, pain, and hurt. It is the act of consecration that begins to make you distinct. Three areas of consecration. The first area that I want to highlight that I believe you and I are called to consecrate our lives in is the area of our mind, the area of our thinking. This is, this is one of the most powerful aspects of our being that flows into everything we do. The power of the mind, the power of the thinking. You have to know this, you have the right to your own thoughts. You have the sovereign right to your own opinions, to your own thinking, to your own mind. The greatest gift that God ever gave humanity outside of life was the ability to think critically. It is what separates you from a duck. A duck's alive, it's living it up, but you are not a duck. You have something they don't have. There's a sentience to you. There's, there's an ability to know right from wrong. You have discernment. You have the ability of self-reflection, of evaluation. You have the ability to conceive ideas and go through the process to bring those ideas into creation. Creation begins in the mind. It begins with the thought. It's professed by words, built by work. You are the only animal that can begin to do that on a very powerful level. You're distinct. You are not like the beasts of the field. You have the ability to observe. You have the ability to receive understanding about yourself and the world around you. You would never find an animal uh, uh, just evaluating and experiencing a piece of art. It's too existential. But you and I, we, we sit there weeping over a piece of art. It changed my life. There's, there's, there's an action, there's a, there's a part of your mind that distinctly makes you who you are. And, and if you're a Christian, God says, I didn't give that to you just for you. That's mine. There's a way to use it. There's a way to think and a way not to think. There's a way to live and a way not to live. And, and you and I, as humans, we have this gift from God to think critically. This is why humanity developed the scientific method. I'm gonna bring you back to fourth grade right now. And we're gonna look at the scientific method. I'm, I'm gonna teach you this before they cancel it. The scientific method <laughs> is this. It's, it's very simple. You make an observation, you identify a problem, you research a problem, develop a hypothesis, get a theory, you design an experiment, test it, collect, analyze the results, and construct a conclusion. This is what you have as an ability to engage with as a human, not, not just to do a volcano experiment. This is a way to think. It's a way to live. Uh, like for, for example, let, let's, let's, let's break this down. You might make a very simple observation. Your observation was, might be that um, I'm, I'm, I make dumb decisions when I'm with my dumb friends. 
you might just observe that about your life. Whenever I'm getting around some dumb people, I'm making dumb decisions. And so you have to identify the problem in your life. Maybe you say, I think I'm easily influenced. I think I'm easily influenced. Now, it doesn't end there. The next step is to research a problem. Read a book. Ask one of your friends that you don't discern as dumb. What's going on in my life? Listen to a podcast. Find, find some wisdom. Talk to a spiritual authority, someone that's further down the line than you. you listen, uh, listen to some wisdom. Search it out. And then develop a hypothesis. And maybe, maybe your hypothesis would, uh, would, would go something uh, like this. Maybe it would be, if I establish boundaries, I'll become healthy in my actions. Maybe that's a hypothesis that you would, you would develop. And then it's time to test it out. You test it out by, by putting those boundaries into place over a pattern of time. And once that's gone with a long enough time that you can compare and you can measure it, maybe you begin to collect and analyze the results. And, and you look at your life. You look at your decisions. You look at what happened. You see new patterns beginning to emerge. When I'm not around dumb people, I'm not doing dumb things. My life is now progressing. There's a new pattern that begins to emerge, which you come to a new conclusion, which is this. I need new friends. <laughs> Understand, all of this you have the ability to do every day. You have the ability to implement it at work. You have the ability to implement it with your family, in your relationships, with your thinking, with your actions, with your mind. You have the ability, hear me, to think critically. And more than even having the ability, I believe you have the calling to think with logic, with discernment, with the powerful mind that God has given you, with the wisdom that is your portion. I believe that the, the reason God gave you such a powerful mind was so that you would pursue truth. That's where we get into trouble. Because many times, truth has a cost. Every time. Truth has a cost. And so in order to pursue truth, we have to count the cost. Jesus says, come, follow me. He is the embodiment of truth. He says, count the cost. Give up the old, then come, follow me. And in order to pursue Christ and Christ-likeness, we have to choose truth over our emotions, over our narrative, over our past, over, over maybe even what we've thought for a very long time. We pursue truth. And I believe the Holy Spirit will even walk with you through the scientific method. He'll walk with you through the process of observing. In fact, I think a lot of times, by the way, the Holy Spirit will start the whole thing off. He'll say, why did you say that? I don't know why I said that. You're not even observing till the Holy Spirit shows up and be like, that was a weird thing that you said. Why do you feel that way every time they walk in the room? Maybe there's some undealt with hurt in there. Because, see, the Holy Spirit gave you the mind. Therefore, he wants you to use the mind. He wants to help lead your mind into perfect truth. The enemy, and you do have an enemy, he wants to control your mind. He wants to control the way that you think. Benjamin Franklin said, if we all think the same way, no one is thinking. The enemy wants to bring uniformity to all your thoughts and actions, but not God. God wants to cultivate your mind. He likes your new ideas. 
the God of creation is also the God of innovation. He, he wants to walk you through the process of discovery. The enemy wants to control, and the enemy always oppresses, but God cultivates. He cultivates your thinking. He causes it to grow. He causes it to flourish. Hear me, when you walk with Jesus over a period of time, your mind will grow better and better. Your thoughts can grow cleaner and cleaner. Wisdom becomes your friend and your ally. Things begin to change in your patterns in decision-making process. And what does it all track back to? It tracks back to a decision. My mind is going to be consecrated to God and the things of God. I'm going to use my mind. I'm not going to numb my mind. I'm not going to disassociate from my mind. I'm not going to exist in patterns of avoidance for the entirety of my life. But I am going to use the greatest gift that God gave me. And God is going to help you cultivate it. I mean, look, at, look at what Paul says to Timothy. He says this. He says, consider what I am saying. For the Lord will give you insight into all things. What's Paul doing? He's saying to a young leader, I want you to think about it. Think about the truth that I'm teaching you. Think about the words that I'm communicating to you. What does the Bible do over and over and over? It encourages you, it encourages you to dig deeper. It encourages you to go to further. It encourages you, you to look and to learn, even at the difficult things. He says, consider what I'm saying. Paul's not nervous. Paul's not nervous about Timothy delving deeper into what Paul's saying. He said, do your own research. Look into it. Ask God. Consider what I'm saying. But, but here's what's going to happen when you begin to consider, when you begin to reflect, when you begin to evaluate. The Lord will give you insight. He's going to give you insight. We, use it, we, we call it revelation. The Lord will give you revelation. You'll say, I, I don't know what was going on. I was just praying about something. I've, I've been thinking about this. And all of a sudden, it hit me. Well, no, no, you were following a principle. This wasn't by accident. God made your mind. You consecrated your mind. You used it con to consider truth. And then God brought insight, brings revelation. And hear me, the one that created all things, knows all things, will give you insight into all things. But you have to ask. And, and so, so what Paul encourages Timothy, I encourage you, reflect. Reflect on your life. Reflect on your actions. Reflect on your week. Reflect in prayer, critical thinking and thought, and, and then allow God to add. Allow God to come alongside you and help you move forward. You know, it's, as a pastor, many times people come to me for, for guidance or for wisdom, and, and I'll always help, and I'll always say what, what you know, maybe I'm thinking and, and, and maybe what the Holy Spirit's saying to me, but, but all that I can do is maybe bring a little bit of guidance, but the Holy Spirit can bring distinct direction. He can say yes and no. He can say not now, not there, not them. Hear me. God, faith does not work absent your mind. It works in divine partnership with your mind. And the more you consider, the more the Lord gives insight. So here is what I'm saying. Here is my hope for you as a Christian, as a member of Awakening. Three things I'm hoping that you can exemplify in your life and your mind. I hope that you can think critically without getting a critical spirit. I'm encouraging you to think critically 
but not getting a critical spirit on you. Knowing why everyone's wrong all the time, why they're wrong, why, what they're missing. You know what they're, you know what they're missing? Critical spirit's favorite word is actually. Actually? Actually? No, no I, I believe we are called to love the Lord with all of our mind, but not allow the enemy to come in and twist it against our fellow man. Think critically without getting a critical spirit. Have the ability to disagree without dishonoring. Have the ability to disagree, and this is very important. In the day, age, time, society we are living in, you must have the backbone and the ability to disagree. I love you. I'm for you. I'm with you. You're not my enemy, but I do not agree. I reserve the right to not consent. I have the ability to disagree, but I'm not going to dishonor. I'm not going to become angry. The Bible says be angry and sin not. Jesus Christ exemplified anger. He exemplified disagreement. Read the New Testament. Read the words of Paul. They, they weren't just like nice guys, like whatever, man, it's all good. They, they, weren't, they, weren't, they weren't ancient hippies. This is not who they were. They had sharp opinions, brilliant minds. Jesus rightly divided truth from the lie, but he honored. He honored. Paul honored. And, and so can we. We can disagree without dishonoring. And let me throw this in. You can disagree without being disagreeable. You can disagree and people can still want you around. One more thing that, that I would hope for you is that you would have the ability to maintain an independent mind without receiving a spirit of rebellion. That you'd be able to maintain an independent mind without getting a spirit of rebellion on you. So what's the goal? What, what's the goal in this process of consecrating our mind? The goal is that we would get the mind of God. The goal is that we would get the mind of God. Acknowledging that God gave us this mind to use, but even saying, but God, your ways, they're better. So I want to consecrate my mind to yours. This is what the prophet Isaiah said in verse 55. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. And God goes on to say, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's speaking to his prophets and saying, I've got thoughts too, and they are higher than your thoughts. I've got ways, they are higher than your ways. But here's the good news. Jesus opened up the way to God's ways. So we can now come to him and say, but God, what is your way? How would you react to this situation? What would you do? What would you say? The, the amazing ability to pray under your breath is to ask God, what is your way? My ways are higher than your thoughts. Get the mind of God. All right, all right. Well, so, okay, Lord, if your ways are higher than my ways, what should I do to get those ways? Well, uh, the, the writer of Colossians tells us to set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things, not on little things. The enemy would love to keep you little in your mind. The enemy loves people that have have, have a small-mindedness. That's earthly things, being considered, you know, small thinking. Small, people, people who, who think small, they're always concerned with what everyone else thinks. That's small thinking. They're so concerned with what everyone else thinks, they're wearing what everyone else tells them to wear, buying what everyone else tells them to buy, so that everyone else will think that, that they're cool. That's earthly things. It's temporary, it's small. But when you, when you get with God, when you set your mind on things above, God elevates your mind away from the, the small concerns of a temporary people. Set your mind on things above. Okay, well, what are the things above? 
What, what do they look like? What do they sound like? The Bible gives us an, the answer in Philippians. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, here's the filter that God's providing for us to use to figure out how to think. It, it, like everyone's born with the ability to use their brains, but not everyone knows how to think. And God's saying, this is how to think. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think on them. Consider them. If you take your situation, your thought patterns, the things you're involved in, and it's not true, abandon that, hold to truth. If it's not honorable, abandon that, hold to what's honorable. If it's unjust, abandon that way, hold to what is just. God is giving us a framework to use our mind. And as you consecrate your mind, God teaches you how to use it to increasing effect. It will bring strength to your body. It will bring help to your family. It will bring friendship to those around you. It will bring wealth. Think about Solomon. Of all the things he could ask, God says, I'll grant you anything. He says, Lord, teach me how to think. Teach me how to think. I want wisdom. And God says, because you asked for wisdom, I'll give you all the rest. Wisdom is the father of success. Wisdom is the mother of success. It is the thing that goes before those things and matters even if they dissipate. So what else? What other areas does God call us to consecrate to him? First being the mind. But I believe the second is so important. The second is our area of finances. Finances. Now I know this is when you want to turn the sermon off. <laughs> but stick with me. Because I believe that this actually will be a blessing to your life. Everyone has an opinion on finances. Most of them are trying to get your money. God has an opinion on finances. He's trying to bless your home. When we, when, so what does, what does consecrated finances look like? Well, I believe before we go personal, we have to start with what truly matters. Consecrated finances begin at the house of God. What does it look like to consecrate our finances, it begins with the house of God. It begins at the principle of the tithe. The principle of the tithe. Let me make a statement here. The tithe is the greatest investment you could make in your entire life. The greatest investment you can make in your life is not GameStop <laughs> nor Bitcoin. The greatest investment you can make is into the house of God. Because Jesus backs the house. He says, I will build my church, and no matter what comes against it, this thing will last. It will succeed. It will go on. And I truly believe in the depths of my being that if you bless the house of God, God will bless your house. He'll have his hand on your house. He'll protect your house. I've seen it happen time and time again.
not just in my life, but those that I've seen go before me. Now, a tithe has a literal meaning. A tithe means a tenth. The principle is to give a tenth of all that you get within the year, all that you own, and give the tenth to God. Because a lot of times people will think tithe just means give a couple bucks, but that's not what's found in Scripture. Scripture says the tenth, the first tenth, not the last tenth. It's not the last thing that we do. It's not the thing that we, you know, if we get around to it, if all the other bills are paid, we, then we give, give a little bit. The Bible says before you touch the money, bring it to the temple. Back then it wasn't money. Back then it was, it was their, their livelihood, whether, whether it was uh, they were shepherds or whether they were in the field. God said, bring the first tenth and burn it on the altar. And so, so they, would, they would burn a, a bull or they would burn a cow. And, and, and now that seems ancient, but think about it. That was like burning money on the altar. It, 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 it hurt just as much then as it would now. It, it, it hurt, but it was the good kind of hurt because it realigned in your heart who's my source, who's my God, what I worship. I don't worship the things that feed me or the things that even, it seems, are my only financial sustenance. I worship God first. Abraham tithed. Jacob tithed. Nehemiah tithed. And Jesus confirmed the tithe. He spoke on the tithe. Do you know that one of the foremost things Jesus spoke about was money? It's one of the one of one of the uh, one of the, the the subjects that he spoke the most about, probably because he knew it was going to be the subject we have the most problems with. We got the most questions on. We the most difficulty is with money. So Jesus preached on it a lot, all throughout scriptures, and and many many of the things he spoke are so powerful ways to live. And one of the famous things that he said, and I really love it because it just paints such a clear contrast of the way God views money, many times from the way we uh, view money, is in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew, uh, God speaks and says, no one can serve two masters. You're, you're going to serve somebody, something with your life. And you cannot serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Then Jesus makes it so clear here. He says, you cannot serve God and money. I, I, I think it's so great because he's speaking this beautiful illustration. And then in the end, he goes, so what I'm talking about is you can't serve God and money. Is that ever, ever, clear? He, 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 he elevates money to a master. Because the reality is it becomes a master for many. He elevates it to becoming like a god. Because it becomes God to many. And when money becomes your God, you have to be blessed by money. The reality is money has no power of blessings. The reality is the the blessings that flows from money usually is the blessing of fear. Or the blessing of anxiety. The blessing of being in control. But God comes and he just makes it clear. He says, you can count the cost. There will always be a cost. You can follow me and receive my blessing. What's the blessing of the Lord? Grace on grace, strength on strength, life on life, eternity, forgiveness. Or you can try and find your way with the thing that has let generations of people down. So what's Jesus saying? He's he's drawing a clear distinction and he's saying, I'm looking for you to consecrate your finances first to God. And what that does is it puts them in their proper place in our lives. And 
And, and then he, he moves on, and the Bible moves on and, and speaks about after you've consecrated to the house of God, then you should consecrate your finances. You should put them in their proper place. After God's house comes your house, our own home. And, and, and God's word helps us uh, create a framework to make wise decisions. Read the book of Proverbs. Read Jesus' teaching on finances. It will help you create the framework to make decisions for blessing. God's word teaches that wise decisions over time leads to financial stability. Wise decisions over time, over time, leads to financial stability. So what am I saying? I'm saying as Christians, we're not waiting to hit the lottery. We're not waiting for a government bailout. We're not waiting for our Bitcoin. Check, check. We're not waiting for our Bitcoin to hit. We are going to apply wise principles in our life, decision-making over a long period of time, and see if that brings us to the place that God has promised it would, which is stability and freedom. My goal for, for us as Christians in our church is that we would create, we would develop a strategy of stable actions oriented towards independence. So, so let, me, let me break down what I mean by that. A, a strategy of stable actions that are oriented towards independence. The goal is to become financially free. Proverbs says that the borrower is the slave of the lender. So the goal is to eliminate debt. Now, that might take a long time through your cars or your school loans or your home, but, but don't say it's insurmountable, I can't even think about it. No, develop a strategy that you can move towards it consistently because everyone underestimates the compounding effect of wise decisions. You, 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 need, you, need, you need a framework. You need some help. You might need to get someone that's further down the road than you. You might need to invest in some podcasts. I mean, one obviously great choice is Dave Ramsey. It costs 99 bucks. It can change your life. It's to enroll in his course. There's some very basic things that you can do. But hear me, if you don't do anything, you won't just find, you won't just, you just trip into freedom. You, 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 you know, many times people are praying for a miracle when God's already provided a way. I was provided a way. Seek wisdom. Give me your mind. Engage in the principles. And then you're going to be able to walk your way into financial freedom. And, and hear me, this won't happen by accident because all of society is designed for you to spend, not save. If all of us began to save in America, the economy would fall apart because it's not designed for us to be wise with our finances. It's not, it's not designed to work that way. It's designed for an ever-increasing amount. And so all the marketing is, is, is not geared towards wise financial decisions. The marketing is geared towards you spending. And, 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 and even, even, even with what we're going through, it's getting increasingly more difficult in the pandemic to be wise with our finances. It's a very difficult time. And, and I know it's difficult for many of you, but... Even in the midst of the difficulty, I pray that, it, that God uses that to walk you to a place to say, I am, I'm going to walk my way out of this. I, I pray God uses the pressure, if I could use this illustration, to make a diamond. I, I pray that God digs this thing through that you're able to find gold in the midst of all the rubble. What I'm saying is, don't let this thing destroy you. You have strength. You have wisdom. 
You've got the word of God and you can walk your way into financial stability and freedom. But you're not going to be able to do what everyone else wants you to do. And maybe you're not even going to be able to do what everyone else around you is doing. There's a whole move against you to get you to abandon wisdom, abandon principle, and just needlessly spend. Do you know, do you know that 51% of people in America do not actively use a budget? A simple act of just creating, checking a budget can instantly separate you from 50% of America. What am I saying? I'm saying consecrate your mind and your ways to God. And I believe that God will help walk you out of a place of lack into a place of disciplined freedom. John Maxwell says this about a budget. He says a budget is telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. Specifically speaking to the younger generation here, start early, start, start with wisdom. And I believe as you, listen, as you walk into security, it unlocks generosity. And we believe generosity is our, is, it's, it's, it's one of our lifestyles. It's who we are. We'll give out of lack or out of much. But I'm telling you, when you have a budget, when you know what your limits are spending, then you can begin to reach out to those around you. Bless the house of God, allow your house to be blessed, and then you can begin to bless all of those around you. And I do pray that the church, I'm talking about the capital C church, begins to lift itself up by itself. That as more people become stable and wise, they can begin to help those around them. The saints helping the saints. And I believe that is where uh, a true revolution can begin to happen. So are you glad you stayed through that section? You didn't click away? Are you glad, are you glad that you didn't shut off just yet? And I, I, I do believe that God can come in, and, and even if there are past scars because of poor decisions on your finances, God even can bring financial healing, restoration, wise decision-making. Can you say Amen. The third and final area of consecration that we are called to live as Christians is this potent area. God's really put it on my heart, but is the area of the family. It's the area of the family. It is of paramount importance. It's your family, your future, your legacy. Families of faith are the pillars of civilization. Families of faith are the pillars of civilization. And I believe if you are a Christian, it is your divine responsibility to raise your family rightly, in righteousness. It is your God-given anointing. We have a generation searching for purpose. Generations searching for calling. Your purpose is to reproduce Christ's likeness in the generation coming after you. When you begin to engage in that, you're going to find fulfillment. You're going to discover maturity. The book of Proverbs says this, says, train up a child in the way. This is the way. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. I want to say this. You have a say in the way. You have a say in the way. You are the one that will determine, mark out, and lead in the way. Especially if you're parents, those of you that are going to be future parents, even grandparents. 
I pray that you have the foremost say in the way. I was talking to a, a pastor friend of mine recently, and, and he's got a, a lot of kids, different ages, and he was talking about uh, how he's saying, you know, what's going on in society and culture. He's saying, I can't just give my kids, kids over to others and just assume they're being taught how I would teach them, that they're getting the mind that I would want them to have and make decisions that I would agree with. And he, he said, so every day when they come home from school, and he said, they even come home from a Christian school. But every day, he said, we, I daily deprogram them. Wow. I love that he used that word. I daily deprogram. He said, I find out what they learn. I found out what we agree and don't agree with. And we walk them through how we think, how we live, how we act. What are our family values? What is our way in Christ's way? Hear me. We are increasingly called in this culture to lead our children towards Christ. The book of Deuteronomy instructs parents in this way. It says, in these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. They're going to get in you. And then here's the commandment. He says, and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, there's that phrase again. And when you lie down and when you rise. Well, what, what is the writer saying to parents, he's saying the way that they will learn will be in the lifestyle. They're going to learn in the lifestyle. In other words, he's saying, tell them of what God did multiple times. Recite the stories and the miracles. Tell them how you got saved. Tell them what you got saved from. Tell them the things that you've observed. Tell them about the history of the church. If, if, if their fa uh, fathers, grandfathers, forefathers were saved, tell them about their salvation stories. Why? Because you need to build a depth of conviction in their heart so that when the wave of culture hits them, they are founded on truth, not on emotion or happenstance, that you are developing them as you live. A lot of times, people want to, uh, want to say, oh, the church will take care of it. The school will take care of it. No one will take care of it if you don't take care of it. The church has an hour a week with them. How many hundreds of hours do you have? And all that the school is going to teach them, it's not going to teach them the things that will make their life eternal. But you will. But you will. God will anoint you to speak. You say, I don't know what to say. You know more than you think you know because you've consecrated your mind. And now God's going to help you use that to consecrate your family. When you walk by their rooms at night, pray over them. Declare over them. You say, oh, I'm not a prophet. Well, you can prophesy. You can prophesy. Speak good things. Speak faith over their lives. Tell them who they are. Fathers bring identity. Fathers confer identity. Mothers bring nurturing. You need both. You need both. And if the fathers don't confer identity, the world will. And the world has no idea who it is. Certainly has no idea who the child is called to be. Your heavenly father knows. Your earthly spiritual fathers know. Tell them who they are. A lot of times parents will let it get to a place where it's too late. They're a teenager. They're doing their own thing. They're wildly on their own. They, they, they didn't raise them in the lifestyle and legacy of the cross. And, and so then they, they want to do a, an emergency. Call the pastor in. They, what, they do like a family meeting. Open up Leviticus. <laughs> it's too late. 
But when they're one, three, seven, ten, that's when you can teach them about who Jesus is and let them see it in your home. Because make no mistake, Babylon has a system of indoctrination. And I'm going to end in a moment here, but Babylon has a system of indoctrination. The world has a way. Jesus says, I am the way. But by the way, the world has a way, and it's broad. It's wide. Many walk down it. The path of Jesus, it's narrow, and few find it. You're going to have to lead your children for many years to find the way of Jesus. Babylon has a way. First thing it does with, with Daniel, with the other Hebrew children, the first thing, the thing is it, it, it gives them the food from the king's table. If you want to become like that king, you eat like the king. You consume like that king. You, you act like that king. They wanted to make many Nebuchadnezzars. And so consume what he consumes. Make no mistake, the, the world, it has a system of indoctrination. Might I say the world has a system of consecration as well. Its system is to take from an early age. You ever notice that it's always the youth? It's always the youth that the enemy targets. When Herod, Herod comes after Jesus, he comes after him when he's young. When Moses needs to be rescued, it's when he's young. The enemy always comes after the youth. So when, when the king is deciding to, to, to change the future of Israel, he, he goes after the young people and he chooses what their food is, but really it's about what they consume. It's about what they consume consistently on a daily basis. Parents, you have to help them consecrate what they consume, even if they don't yet have their own convictions. You've got to set some boundaries. You can't be unplugged, unsure, not knowing. You need to know what they're into, who they're with, where they're headed, because you don't want a mini Nebuchadnezzar on your hand. Looks, acts, smells, talks like Babylon. But while their calling is to be a member of the tribe of Judah, Call, they're called to put on Jesus Christ. Parents, hear me, you are responsible for the content that your children consistently consume. You're responsible. The media, the music, the entertainment, the places, and the friendship. You need to know. Say, I, I, I don't know, what app, I think they're always on this app. You need to know what that app is. They're always talking to this guy. You need to know what they're talking about. Well, I don't want to snoop. They're 12. They're 12. You pay for that phone. You pay for the room. You pay for the house. You pay for the Wi-Fi. You pay for every single thing. <laughs> they have a right to be led. They have a right to be led by you. So necessary that you're involved in what they are consistently consuming. And I, I, I want you to hear me. You have the right, you have the responsibility from God above to shepherd your flock. The next thing that the enemy does in the process of indoctrination is, is to give them new names. Make no mistake, the world wants to tell your child who it is. Wants to tell your child how to act. Wants to tell your child how it is to discern its future. But... The world did not save your children, nor did they birth your children. Jesus saved them. Mothers, you birthed them. Fathers, you are the ones that are creating the protection of that home. You tell them who they are. Tell them over and over and over and over. They need to know deeply who they are. So when the attack of the enemy comes, they have enough truth as a foundation. Final area that they... That, 
that needs to be consecrated is the area of language and literature. What the enemy tries to do is come and bring its own form of education to your children. They want the values of the world to become their values, the way it thinks to become the way they think. It wants its worldview to become their worldview, its ideology, their ideology, their God. Don't forget, by the end of this story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were having to kneel before its idol. It starts with food. It ends with idolatry. Always. Teach them how to be brave when they're young. Teach them how to disagree without dishonoring. Teach them what a consecrated mind is. Teach them how to make the difficult decisions. And it might not be finances for them, but understand that's the difficult decision of consecration that they are going to see modeled in your home. So when it comes time, they will not bow to any lesser gods. I believe we as the church are called we as Christians are called to live a life of godly consecration. And I believe as we do that, it will begin to create stability where the enemy seeks to grow confusion. But I believe that your, your home should be blessed. Your life, your mind, your actions should be blessed and ever increasingly so. That God's hand will be on your children and your children's children. He's a generational God. God will give you wisdom in words in the time that you need them. Stay connected to him. Dedicate yourself in these three areas, the way you think, the way you spend, the actions that you take, and with your family and your future. And I believe God will build something strong in your life. Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.